Hey, Andy Phillips here. And I'm Tom Hackett. You may remember us from that time when we used to try really hard to make plays on fourth down. Well, we're back at it with a brand new show called Special Forces Gang, where we give you new perspective on what it takes to be a football player. We talk all things Utah football, sports, and life. Don't miss Special Forces Gang. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or on kslsports.com. Go Utes! Dave and Eugenific. On today's show, a lot of heartburn over the proposed food tax increase. And the question, censure over impeachment. Representative Ben McAdams is on the censure train. Tune in Monday through Thursday, 9 to 11 for Dave and Dijanovic. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Stefan Drake. You know, from a costing perspective, building fees is a, is a pretty, uh, pretty tight margin proposition as a manufacturer. And, you know, you're, you're just, you're always looking to save, um, you know, pennies and dollars here on your bill of materials to, to make the business viable. Stefan, thanks for making time. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here. So, um, you know, being a diehard snowboarder, it's hard to have skiers on the show, right? But, uh, but you guys have really been inventing the future and all our ski buddies will be stoked <laughs> that we had you on. Uh, can you talk though about some of the ways that DPS skis is like really kind of charged ahead and innovative and some of the, you know, some of the new things you guys introduced to the ski industry? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I guess the, yeah, the story goes back to the, the atmosphere and the, and the era around the founding. And, you know, it, it was really, uh, this was around 2002, 2003, which was a, um, like pretty, uh, transformative time for skiing in the sense that snowboarding you know had a really big influence on skiing uh, at that time and and but from a manufacturer's and a brand standpoint uh skiing at that point was still very much uh, eurocentric and race centric and um you know i think that innovation just stems from from kind of uh, just personal passion and an obsession uh, for for a new way that we wanted to ski, and that existed uh, very much in the imagination at first in terms of combining, yeah, surfing, snowboarding, the most powerful and dynamic and styly parts of skiing, you know, whether it was the uh, G-forces and angles of racing uh, mixed in with, you know, the quiet hands and style of freestyle, and just this conglomerate conglomeration of, of all these different styles and, and ways of riding mountains um, sort of prompted us to imagine uh, new equipment that, that would allow us to ski in ways that, you know, we only kind of dreamed of, which was, yeah, again, this, this combination of, of what we'd seen in snowboarding in terms of the planing that was going on in powder or surfing and just putting all these things together. And so, so yeah, so when we, uh, when we started, um, yeah, we immediately wanted to create, you know, these these wider um, uh, rocker shapes that would plane and powder, and and so that was um, so that happened on the shaping side, and then at the same time, uh, we also wanted, you know, we had a really deep performance background, and and um, you know, we're just going for this kind of apex apotheosis uh, type experience out in the mountains, and so. Uh, as the skis got wider and bigger to float, we also wanted all the performance that came from racing. So uh, uh, with the mass of these bigger powder skis, we wanted lighter skis that still retain powder. And that kind of prompted the innovation into carbon skis. So 
uh, yeah, the combination of, of materials innovation and shaping are, are really kind of at the core of our um, core of our story. And uh, and yeah, so we were able to you know build skis kind of like the first sort of 120 millimeter underfoot pintails. Uh, the first the first rockered ski with side cut was the Lotus 138 in 2005. And uh, and sort of, sort of these skis became these seminal benchmarks for for really what um, kind of all mountain skis and powder skis are today in, in some form or another. And so. So for people who don't know why rocker is such a big deal, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, the shape of the bottom of the surfboard is so much, so much better for powder skiing than, than, uh, you know, what the ski industry had been doing for the previous however many decades? Yeah. So, you know, as, as I mentioned before, skiing was, uh, like all the development and brand energy was, was really around racing. That was kind of the benchmark, which happens in hard snow. And in hard snow, you know, it's advantageous to have your edge, uh, your effective edge be really uh, long and, and uh, sort of all the way up almost to the, the tip and tail of the ski. Uh, whereas in soft snow, rocker, which is you know, basically raking back the contact point of the ski um, and creating this lift uh, from the effective edge up to the tip or vice versa in the tail, uh, that allows the ski to uh, do a couple things. One, it gives it a lot more flotation and planing ability in soft snow. So uh, the tip uh, wants to rise. There's leverage on the on the whole tip to rise. So, so no longer, uh, if you're using a traditional old school ski, um, yeah, the ski isn't confined uh, to kind of porpoise and, and, and dive in the snow in between uh, turns, which is really inefficient in powder. It creates, um, yeah, it creates drag, really. So rocker gets the whole ski uh, lifting up towards the, the surface. And the second thing it does is it also uh, kind of reduces the drag of the effective edge laterally so that, so that you have a lot more ability to pivot and uh, get creative in, in soft snow that makes sense yeah so you know i feel like there's such a myth around innovation this idea of somebody had a genius idea from nowhere when in reality right. investigate all these stories so often it's like people have been thinking about something and then all of a sudden they bump into the other half of their idea and it's like sure. the the mashup they remix it and it gets called innovation when when uh, all these you know all these theories about like the eureka moment were really often more of like a combination moment. Do you, do you identify with that or would you say it different? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, I think generally, um, no matter how innovative um, an idea is, it usually, it usually piggybacks upon something. Right. Um, uh, so, so yeah, I, I think in many cases it can be the conglomeration of, of many previous ideas that, that take on a new twist towards to create something new. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about in our own product development, like there's, there's very uh, few truly revolutionary things and there's, there's, but most advancements are evolutionary. I, I would say rocker and skiing is, was more revolutionary in the sense that it just, the, it opened up entirely new doors in terms of performance and, and, and style. But yeah, like you said, it, it comes, um, you know, it wasn't like, it didn't like pop out of the ether or anything. Um, surfboards uh, have been made for, for decades with, with rocker in them. And, and it's just the connection of creating, you know, understanding that powder snow is, is more of a hydro um, medium than, than hard snow. And then, you know, and obviously in boat building and surfing and 
you know, people have been playing with, with watercraft for, for, uh, for a very long time. Putting those two together is kind of what, what, what made this happen. Yeah. So, I mean, you think about, and, and again, this, you know, these super light skis now with the, with the carbon and the materials you guys are doing. Um, can you talk about like, as you think about innovation and, and in some ways like reinventing an industry or a space, um, can you talk about the reaction to it and maybe some of the struggles people wouldn't anticipate because it's so obviously better? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, like any kind of pretty radical new concept, there's there's always a lot of skepticism. And, you know, I have there's fun memories of, um, you know, especially in Europe, which is, kind of, I don't know, a little bit more traditional and less receptive to radical new things, you know like going into pretty progressive shops with, with progressive people and, you know, cool people that are core skiers and like showing them some of these early shapes that look so radical compared to a traditional ski and, you know, having people, you know, like these shop owners or buyers just look at it and like disbelief and say, you know, this is not a ski, you know, and, and but it is, you know, go try it. And so, uh, so yeah, so, you know, the, the adoption period, um, you always have your early adopters who are like will, willing to uh, to take risks and, and try new ideas, but but yeah, certainly that process takes a while to to kind of uh, validate itself and and get people behind it. If that's what you're asking. Yeah, it's it's got to be fun when they finally come around, though. I'm guessing. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean that that's a cool process to watch too, you know, and 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 as a designer and a producer too, you're you know seldom does something come out perfect out of the gate. So you're you know even if you have something revolutionary, that's the evolutionary part is um, you know once that first stab is taken, then the evolution begins, and that's where you're tinkering and perfecting and evolving. Um, so, so you go along for the ride as well. You know, every, everyone goes along for the ride. If, if that new technology is validated, it then needs to be perfected and refined. Yeah, no kidding. Well, let's take a quick break from the sponsor, and then I've got some more questions for you. Sounds good. Hey, Andy Phillips here, and I'm Tom Hackett. You may remember us from that time when we used to try really hard to make plays on fourth down. Well, we're back at it with a brand new show called Special Forces Gang, where we give you new perspective on what it takes to be a football player. We talk all things Utah football, sports, and life. Don't miss Special Forces Gang. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or on kslsports.com. Go Utes! Okay, so um, Stefan, thinking about um, this this approach and everything you've done, you know, you think about like there's carbon. There's so many things that we've got carbon fiber, this carbon fiber, that carbon's been applied in different ways. And you know, nowadays, if you if you don't have rocker in your lineup in the snowboard world, people would look at you funny, right? But can you talk about those new materials and this new shape back before it was commonplace, before everybody had accepted it? You said you said yeah, I mean, when you went to Europe, people were like, "This isn't a ski." What else? Yeah, yeah. I mean, carbon too. You know, uh, like the like I said before, the reason we wanted to employ carbon is because we had this heritage of, of high performance, i.e., torsional stiffness, longitudinal stiffness. That <laughs> excuse me, traditionally, where you really get from uh, in ski building, it's double laminate. So you know, tetanol, which is um, an alloy, uh, makes up your laminates in the ski, and, and they're super high-performance materials, but once you get to wide shapes, uh, the, the mass just becomes overwhelming, and, you know, you got anchors on your feet. So 
so carbon was this logical um, uh, leap towards creating something that uh, both had the very strong power to weight ratios, but um, but intrinsically was was a lot lighter than the, the existing technology at the time. And again, you know, this wasn't it wasn't like we dreamed up carbon fiber. You know, we looked to uh, connected the dots between the, you know, the, the success it had uh, as a material in other sporting industries, uh, you know, all through the uh, 90s in terms of revolutionary, revolutionizing equipment, whether it's sailing, biking, uh, windsurfing, tennis, you know, you name it. Um, and it just hadn't been integrated into skis yet. Now, carbon has a lot of challenges, which to this day, we're still working on in terms of the ski application. It's just in terms of like creating a ski that's also planted and damp um, and connected to the snow, that that's a challenge because uh, carbon carbon is a very electric material that um, you know has a different vibrational profile than than a lot of the tr- more traditional damper materials like glass and metal that are used to skis. So, so anyway, yeah, like while it uh, seemed very obvious to us, it also um, had its challenges, and and like I said, to this day we keep evolving um, how how carbon is employed but and the dream is to build this ultimate you know the perfect ski which has all those great characteristics that carbon brings without any of the the downside and that's um, that's an evolution that's still happening to this day yeah no kidding well uh not to be skipped over can you talk to us about phantom yeah sure that's a that's another one that you know that's a um yeah i've Revolution versus evolution. I put that in the the revolution um, category for sure, which is pretty fun to be a part of because um, you know, in terms of everyday skiing and snowboarding, it, it, like Phantom is, is truly this this novel solution um, that uh, yeah that replaces the need for wax uh, really unless you're you're racing. So uh, and it's a totally different approach uh, technology uh, from a technology standpoint than than kind of a the technology that's been pretty status quo for um for more than 100 years so uh, that one's really fun to be a part of well and again you know we got i think we have listeners in like 148 countries now so for the folks who aren't familiar with like the grind of like oh we're gonna go out in the mountains again uh, i forgot to wax and it's like you're all ready to go it's like 11 o'clock at night you're like ah where's my iron i gotta go put wax on my yeah i gotta go put i gotta go wax up so that my you know my skis or snowboard don't stick to the snow as i'm going down um, can you can you tell people what Phantom is and why they don't need to wax anymore? Yeah, sure. So you know, this is another um, story I think of um, technology in this industry that that's really been race driven. So I think you know, wax is a solution to make your skis or snowboard glide faster, turn easier, go through um, you know different snow conditions, create a more pleasurable riding experience. That's really been the the advancement in wax have been driven by racing and what i mean by that is that racing is is really a um it's kind of a one-run deal you're just trying to create as much speed as you can for one run to win the race and i think that's what's really driven uh, uh product advancements in the wax world whereas if you're skiing or snowboarding every day or you know like yourself you're out on a you're on a hut trip or just not near a shop or don't have the time to wax um uh, it's pretty impractical in the sense that wax can last anywhere from one run to a few days kind of max generally so it, it's a it requires constant maintenance to um you know to keep your your boards running well and uh and so yeah i think while wax has evolved in terms of 
of the speed, it never really addressed the, the, the kind of true, uh, the true sort of everyday skier snowboarders needs in terms of permanence. And that's what Phantom does. Phantom is a chemical, um, it's a UV cured chemical solution that permanently binds the same uh, kind of go fast uh, floral materials to your base um, in a permanent chemical bond. So it basically fuses um, these materials to your base. And it also penetrates the entire thickness of your base, meaning that yeah, once once it's on there, it's it's on there for the the life of the the ski or the snowboard. Uh, meaning that you know you you really never have to uh, apply wax again uh, unless you're racing, where uh, race wax is faster than Phantom. But practically speaking, Phantom is totally sufficient and an amazing uh, glide tool for for just everyday skiing and snowboarding. Yeah. So, and, and here's another one, like, did, you know, was that, was this a Eureka moment or where did, where did you guys find out this was even possible or how did that evolution come about? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, the story goes that um, I first got introduced to the idea actually via an email from my mom who uh, forwarded me, I think a New York times article about a group at MIT that had created uh, like industrial lubricants for, um, for like imagine uh, ketchup bottles, you know, when you have to hit the side of the ketchup bottle to get the ketchup out and, and this coating would lubricate, uh, it would be this industrial coating that would be food safe and, uh, you know, would exist, for example, inside ketchup bottles, to make the ketchup uh, come out. And she said, uh, yeah, why don't you, uh, why don't you reach out to these guys and, uh, and see if there's a ski application. So that that's how the idea was seeded. I sent an email to them, and um, and I never got a reply back. But then a year later, was at a trade show in Europe, and these uh, guys from the UK uh, came up and and said they basically had a chemical coating that, that did the same thing. And at that point, my interest had already been seeded and peaked uh, on this concept. So we uh, we took a look at their product. And, um, and, uh, yeah, uh, during that process, um, I hooked up with, uh, a professor here at the university of Utah material, uh, engineer named Jeff Bates and, um, who basically said, you know, his, his dissertation and expertise, um, was, uh, was in polymers and he had a, uh, yeah, he had, he had the technology he said to, to really develop this and, and make it work correctly. And so we, we partnered up and, and boom, about a year later, um, had, had some working phantom. That's amazing. So, you know, the chemicals and the UV light curing and everything like this, what's the reception been or, or how do you, how far along the curve do you feel like you are in adoption? For, for the industry yeah it's been it's, it's been really interesting so we we did a kickstarter uh um in october of last year and that was really successful and then we took it to trade uh you know to the wholesale channel and and really the you know this this is a a great example i think of the evolutionary tinkering side of of commercially developing a product like we weren't uh when we took it to trade shows in january you know, the, the initial cure on Phantom was basically took um, like three to six hours outside. So it wasn't particularly convenient. And that was the, the real obstacle to adoption. And uh, from a retailer's uh, standpoint, which is where commercially, you know, we look to, um, you know, to really scale this as a business, we, we didn't have a, a good solution uh, for a retailer to provide, the, you know, a Phantom application service to the customer. So, 
once we saw that that, that was just going to be a, a real hole towards scaling it, we, we worked really hard um, over the past eight months on developing what we call a cure station, which is basically like a tanning bed uh, for skis or snowboards. And that has the UV lights in it, a heating system that allows a shop to uh, apply phantom, you know, regardless of what, you know, if you're, if you're in the Yukon or Alaska or Sweden or Norway, um, you know, regardless of the time of year and the sunlight, and obviously and do it indoors on a rainy or snowy day. So that that's kind of the um, the key to, to scaling it commercially. And right now we're in we're in a really fun stage in that we've um, relaunched with this cure station to retailers and we're getting uh, yeah really strong adoption and and uh, from both a business and a product standpoint it's it's starting to really take off. So um, yeah, it, it's a pretty exciting time right now. What, what do you feel like the potential is for licensing deals as far as, you know, OEM manufacturers wanting to do this before they even ship it out in the first place? Yeah, you know, I, we obviously we're uh, we're ski builders ourselves and we understand that, um, you know, from a costing perspective of building skis is a is a pretty, uh, pretty tight margin proposition as a manufacturer. And, you know, you're, you're just, you're always looking to save, um, you know, pennies and dollars here on your bill of materials to, to, to make the business viable. And uh, so, so, uh, so yeah, we considered that in the whole business model and really thought that the best value is to the retailer, which especially the brick and mortar retailer, which at this point in the game uh, with e-commerce, you know, these guys are, are really looking to provide service and value. Mm. And so, you know, I think having um, the benefit go to the retailer, the customer, um, you know, in terms of that application experience, it just, the, that ecosystem works a lot better than selling it um, pre, pre-packaged. So it's really positioned as, a, uh, as an accessory, just like wax would be or footbeds for your, for your boots, whether they're ski boots or snowboard boots. And, and so, yeah, we're committed to, to that business model rather than um, a pre-applying OEM. Sure. Well, we're about out of time for the first half of the interview here. Um, besides people coming to uh, going to the website and going to dpsskis.com, um, well, let, let's do that. So these are not the cheapest skis at the ski swap. Um, they, yep. Can you give give us the uh, let's let's get the elevator pitch on why why come to dpsskis.com and consider the best skis instead of the cheapest skis. Yeah, so uh, you know, there's a few factors. One, we talked about the materials. Basically, you know, if you buy uh, our Alchemist or Tour skis, you're really getting skis that were designed um, just to be the absolute ultimate performance um, tools, rather than you know hit a particular price point. So, you know, we're using prepreg carbon fibers, which um, uh, for all our laminates, we're using. Um, you know, the top of the line race bases, all the materials are, are super premium and, uh, and hence the cost. And then beyond that, you know, the design heritage and yeah, basic obsession with design and perfection, the combination of two, those two things are, are, um, you know, what we hope justify the price. And I think generally, uh, yeah, people are super dedicated to the sport and, and really appreciate the performance and energy savings that they get out of these skis or yeah, they're more than happy to, uh, to pay up for them. So. Well, you know, even though they're, you know, a thousand bucks or 1300 bucks for a pair of skis, when you get, you know, men's health and all, all sorts of recognition around, you know, as the best ski gear, 
it's got to it's got to even out, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, another thing I forgot to mention too is like carbon fiber. The if you could buy a standard glass fee, you know, which you can easily for half the price or less. Um, uh, you know, typically the flex life on those is, uh, you know, if you pound them for 10, 15 days at the resort, in a lot of cases, um, I'm not saying all, but the, the life in those skis starts to go away and they're kind of dead, more or less, you know, more dead to begin with in terms of their reactivity. And, and really with our uh, laminates and the resins we're using, uh, we say, you know, the flex life is practically infinite and people will attest to this. You know, if you keep your skis, we, we have the you know, best hardest bases, we have thick edges. And, you know, if you keep them four or five years and don't blow them up on rocks, you know, they should flex and feel and have the same energy in them that they did from day one, uh, which, you know, at that point, you've already bought two or three other pairs of skis to, to just keep the life up. So, so yeah, b- beyond the initial sticker price, we think there's, there's really good long-term value um, that more than makes up for the, the initial price. Love it. Well, everybody, tune back in to part two of our interview with Steph, and we're going to ask more about, you know, reinventing an entire industry. So thanks. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York, and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or four hundred million dollars. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks.